0: Shalom uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, This is uh, once again Watchmen Talk. And uh, we are having our second part uh, of a conversation with retired British Army Colonel Richard Kemp. Thank you for coming over again. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thanks. Good to be with you again.
0: So, um we stopped earlier um, when the British Army went into uh, the Falkland uh, war uh, what What was the role of your regiment yourself uh, during that uh, conflict? My
1: regiment wasn't involved it was It was a relatively small war. The British Army at that time, unlike today, was pretty big. It was something like one hundred and fifty thousand strong, which it's it's that's probably almost twice the size it is today, so it didn't involve the whole of the army. Only a small number of battalions deployed to fight. My regiment wasn't one of them, and nor was I. I didn't take part. Unfortunately, it was the it was probably the one war that I missed during my service, which I regret eternally. Um, but it was it was I think a high a high water for not just for the British armed forces, but also for for Great Britain because rejoice yeah yeah it, it, and Margaret Thatcher's words. And it, 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 it. I think you know one thing that is is interesting is that right at the very beginning, when the Argentinians invaded the Falklands, and of course, let's not forget, the Falklands is British sovereign territory. It was never part of Argentina. The Falklands had British presence in it before Argentina existed as a country. So it's not a question of us having taken it from the Argentinians, but they decided. I think for more political problems at home, they decided to. Um, to 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 invade and w- and when they did the 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 head of the Royal Navy uh, Admiral Leach went straight across to Ten Downing Street to see Margaret Thatcher. The Chief of Defence Staff was away in Australia when it began, so the head of the Navy was basically standing in. And Margaret Thatcher said to him, "Should we should we try and retake it?" And Leach said to her, "And and Leach is a very experienced man who who actually had a ship sunk out from under him in the Second World War, so he was." a Experienced combat uh, na- naval man um, he said, if we don't retake the Falklands, then Britain we will wake up tomorrow in a different country. in other words, you know Britain will be trampled all over the the the, the sovereignty of of democracies will be in question around the world, and I think he personally convinced Margaret Thatcher not only that it was a right thing to do but that the British armed forces could do it.
0: Which, uh, by the way, also shows you that having um, a military junta or junta uh, in power, as was the case in Buenos Aires, is a very bad idea.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, and there's many cases in this history where, where that's been borne out.
0: So, following uh, uh, Falklands, you were back to Germany or back and forth Germany and Ireland? My personal
1: career um, consisted of, as, as I mentioned before, a lot, a lot of time in Germany, a lot of time in Northern Ireland, uh, and, and then really after, from I suppose really for, we, we had a period of time in the in the mid 90s where the British Army had a heavy commitment in the Balkans, and I, I did several tours Kosovo. in Kosovo, in in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in Macedonia, uh, and, and, and under NATO some sometimes under the United Nations, sometimes under NATO, different places different times, my service uh, in Bosnia was under the United nations Protection blue helmets. Force yeah exactly um, and, and, our, and, and so we, we we did a lot of a lot of peacekeeping operations there. I also did peacekeeping operations in Cyprus, which was a you know not not exactly the most demanding operational tour i 've ever been on um, And then it was really after...
0: But you have accumulated some experience in in separating, in that case, Turks from Greeks earlier in Northern Ireland, and yeah, Yeah. the list can go on and
1: on. And indeed, after the Berlin Wall fell, that really, that changed the pattern of the British army of being based in a number of quite tropical places like Hong Kong and, you know, different countries around the world, Cyprus. Uh, but mainly in Germany, the UK, and Northern Ireland. The fall of the Berlin Wall changed all that. And, and, and of course, one of the first things that happened was um, the first Gulf War where Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait. And and I was involved in in that war in in
0: 1990, 1991. Tell us about it. Recount your experience. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I, I had an unusual experience in that war um, because I was – As I mentioned uh, in the first part, I was an infantry soldier, so I I was trained and experienced in fighting on my feet. But in that war, I fought in a tank, a Challenger 1 tank, um, which was the 7th Armored Brigade. 7th Armored Brigade.
0: Which is, by the way, also in the Israeli Defense Forces, the most prominent armored brigade. And uh, surely it's no coincidence. No. Because because veterans of the British Army uh, decided uh, to... uh, to take this number for this brigade. Well, there are many,
1: many, many commonalities, you know as well as I do, between the British Army and the and the IDF. Um, mostly going back right back to the formation of the IDF, based in, to a large extent on British. Of Army. course,
0: many many people, right. my own late father included, were uh, served in the British Army. Mm. He was yeah. uh, um, towards the end of his service, an officer. Uh, his his uh, commissioning was here in. Yeah. Palestine, yeah. at, uh, at a camp which still serves the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, and uh, before you go on into Desert Storm, what is the organizational culture of the British Army? Because many of the uh, Israelis who took part in the formation of the IDF, as you mentioned, along with people who served in Haganah here, mm-hmm. or uh, as irregulars, sort of partisan war, Um, But the British veterans brought with them a sort of spit and polish uh, discipline, uh, which was perhaps uh, unnatural to the Sabra spirit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, it's an interesting uh, comparison. And and, and back then, in in the sort of immediate post-war period, that sort of time, um, the British army was renowned for its spit and polish. Um, and also for much of my service, I would say today it's it's probably a bit different. And and, and interestingly, um, one of the, when I was at Sandhurst, our military academy, the the army that we studied, I think more closely than any other army in the world, was the IDF. That was that was I could back then I could name to you pretty much every general and every battle fought in every war that Israel fought.
0: But mostly the Yom Kippur War and the Six Day War.
1: Yeah, mostly, but but all all of the Israel's wars and. Um, and, and the reason for the reason we looked at it so intensely was because, as I mentioned, we were preparing. Our primary objective was preparing to fight the Russians in Eastern Euro, in, in Europe, and, and the only army that was really involved in armored warfare at that time actively was the Israeli Defense Force. And not only that, they're also fighting against Russian equipment. So these there were big lessons for us to be learned, and and, and we learnt them. I think we learnt them pretty effectively, and and the um, I would say uh, to, to the viewers that the, the, I don't think I've met, or very, if ever very few, British soldiers who don't have the utmost respect for the IDF. If you say what's the best fighting force in the world, many of them will come up with the IDF and, and they have huge admiration for the IDF.
0: But, you know, it's mutual. If you ask many Israeli uh, officers and especially those uh, who are involved in intelligence... Uh, they are in awe of MI6 and mm. of uh, military intelligence uh, in the British Armed Forces for the professionalism and um, ability uh, to be cool and collected, um, which is not usual for for um, Israelis. So, going back to, to uh, your challenger, to the tank... Um, which um, obviously uh, is is part of a series. First, you had the, the uh, Centurion. Uh, it's always it's always um, starting with, with a C, yeah. um, and uh, the the Challenger. Um, you were in an infantry company accompanying um, an armored battalion, what or a mixed. Uh, we, match up of-
1: we did have that that was the common formation within you know we call them battle groups within a brigade mm-hmm. so in 7th brigade we had three battle groups which was each battle group made up of a mix of armor tanks and armored infantry who who moved around in in warrior in apc yeah they, yeah exactly uh, as well as you know other elements like armored artillery and engineers and things um, but but in fact, my that wasn't my role. I, I was my 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 own regiment did not deploy to the uh, First Gulf War. They stayed in Germany. So I managed to get myself out there as an individual, and I became the operations officer for the commander of Seventh Armoured Brigade. So I was in the commander of Seventh Armoured Brigade's command tank. I was actually his loader, uh, as well as doing all the stuff that operations officers have to do. And, and we, we, we on that tank, we flew a flag that had been flown by uh, a commander in the 7th Armoured Brigade during the Second World War, the Desert Rats, which was also our nickname, the Desert Rats. So that was my job, was to... Was, Under
0: Montgomery, 8th Army? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah back in, back in the day. Uh-huh. Because, you know, the, as, as we've kind of alluded to, the British Army has, we, we put a lot of store in traditions and 7th Armored Brigade, 7th Armored Division, Desert Rats, we had the same badge, we wore the same badge in the Gulf War on
0: our shoulders. Well, the desert again, of course. Yeah, Exactly. But uh, before the um, ground phase of the war started, or even before the war itself, uh, in mid-January of 1991, there was this myth or perhaps propaganda of the Million Men Army that Saddam Hussein Mm. had probably many casualties, perhaps chemical warfare. What was it like?
1: It was um, uh, in, in the build-up. We spent, we spent several months in Saudi Arabia in the desert, south of Kuwait. That's
0: the desert shield part of Yeah,
1: preparing, preparing yeah. and training and going you know, doing live firing ranges and things like that, maneuvers with the Americans. We were, of course, part, initially my brigade was part of the 1st U.S. Marine Division, and then later we became part of the 3rd U.S. Army um, for the actual invasion. And um, so we spent a lot of time there. When it, uh, and in our preparation, we were... I think, I think people just really didn't know what they were going to be facing. They, they did know that Saddam had a huge army. We prepared as, as strongly as we possibly could. And as you know, the Americans and the other allies built massive forces up to overcome this big army.
0: And to protect uh,
1: Saudi Arabia. E- exactly. And, uh, and, and so th- there was a lot of apprehension. I Personally, I have to say... I didn't feel the Iraqis would put up very strong opposition, and that was based mainly on my study of the IDF and how the IDF had fought different Arab armies and how the Arab armies had operated, and and I was you know I, I was right in that assessment because when we went into uh, Kuwait and and into um, Iraq, we actually invaded directly into Iraq and then swung around into Kuwait. Um, the, the Iraqi army was pretty much routed. They'd been subjected to a lot of airstrikes in advanced artillery, long-range artillery strikes. And we went in and we completely unmatched them. Uh, and we had tanks that could fire out to about 3,000 meters. They had tanks that could fire out to about 1,000 meters. We had great night and day visibility. They had only daytime visibility. So it was, it was in many ways a bit like a turkey shoot. And the Iraqis were surrendering very quickly. There were some pitched battles and there were some hard battles. Some Iraqis fought very hard. But the majority, I think, ended up surrendering very, very quickly. From
0: your perch as an operations officer, looking up and around, what was it like to fight uh, in an alliance? Um, You were, as you said, uh, subordinate to American command, uh, eventually, the overall commander was General Schwarzkopf, the mm-hmm. the CENTCOM uh, commander, of course, who who had his orders coming from Washington. Uh, there was this um, Arab alliance, uh, ostensibly led by Prince Khaled of Saudi Arabia, but this was secondary. Um, did you feel um, um, that it was convenient to fight? with allies and under foreign command?
1: Yeah, it, it worked extremely well. Just to pick you up on one point, the, the Arab armies, I wouldn't have said, were secondary, maybe in terms of the actual fighting, but in terms of, of maintaining political cohesion across the alliance, I think the Arab armies were essential to that. And, and indeed, that was one of the reasons why, probably the major reason why it was so important that when Israel sustained scud attacks during that war, um, that Israel did not respond because had they done, that would have fractured the alliance. And certainly I think the Arab armies may not have continued to take part. It would have made it very, very it's, difficult.
0: It's really astounding that not only Egypt, which already had peace with Israel, but also Syria, sent yeah. forces yeah. into Saudi Arabia yeah. um, against uh, the, the Iraqis.
1: Yeah, I worked with the Syrian armored formation during the, not, not during the fighting itself, but in the work up to the fighting. But it, the, in terms of being in the in a in an international coalition, it, it was extremely beneficial, I think, for everybody concerned. And when we first went out there, we deployed and the Americans deployed immediately, Marines first into Kuwait. We deployed very quickly after them. I think mainly for political um, solid, solidarity with the Americans. But we weren't really ready for that. The British Army uh, did not have the readiness needed to deploy a large formation at short notice into the desert like the Americans did. And so we depended almost totally on the United States Marine Corps so for se- our survival you send, initially.
0: You um, first of all send in uh, your troops and then you link up with the equipment only when it comes over land or um, uh, by sea. And originally what you have is a, is a hollow unit.
1: Yeah, I deployed one of the first to deploy to to uh, Kuwait um, into Al-Jabal port. And we we basically stayed there and did you know, acclimatization, preparation training, waiting, and we flew in, waiting while our tanks and armored vehicles and other logistics support arrived by ship. And as I mentioned, in that early stage, we didn't really even have the logistics to support our own lives. So we were dependent on the US Marine Corps for that.
0: If we um, jump into Afghanistan 10 years uh, uh, later uh, or so, uh, was that a similar experience to to Kuwait and Iraq?
1: It was very different. I mean, the, the, the war in uh, the first Gulf War, Desert Storm, was was a, a full blown conventional war, tanks versus tanks, artillery versus artillery, air versus air, etc. Um, the the Afghanistan campaign was a, effectively a counterinsurgency campaign, low level fought by mm-hmm. conventional forces against terrorist insurgents, whatever you want to call them. So it was completely different. It was far more like Northern Ireland compared to the Gulf War. Although, as I mentioned in the previous part, it, it's too easy to take a template from Northern Ireland and put it on Afghanistan because they're completely different. But what there are was lessons in your
0: somehow. own mission? You, eventually you uh, commanded all British uh, uh, troops in Afghanistan, uh, didn't you?
1: Yeah, 2003, I was the commander of British forces in Afghanistan. But that sounds probably grander than it is, because the British forces in Afghanistan at that time, we were we were based in Kabul and in Mazar-Sharif in the north. We were not in Helmand, where later the British army deployed to. Uh, We had a relatively small number of forces. I was a colonel. A colonel doesn't command vast forces. So my, my command there was not huge. But I had responsibility for all British troops in Afghanistan and British Air Force assets as well. We had a couple of planes, um, and we worked closely with the NATO command structure there. And my my forces, I had I had forces doing different roles around the country, but the the majority of them were working under the Canadians uh, in in Kabul doing patrol counter terrorist patrol activity in Kabul.
0: The uh, chain of command led from from NATO. Um to the Americans, uh, and then to the Canadian force, and then to your—it it
1: was a—it com- <laughs> was a complicated situation. I was I was the commander, direct commander of British forces there, and my chain of command went straight from me to the UK. That was my my boss was in the UK, the, the Ministry of Defence, um, or the Permanent Joint Headquarters under the Ministry of Defence. Um, so, and and every, every decision affecting the UK forces had to be made by me uh, in connection with London. Um, but but our forces that were deployed on, for example, operations in, in Kabul with the Canadians, they would operate under the operational control of the Canadians. So in other words, they would follow the orders of the Canadian chain of command, which went to NATO. Um, it didn't go then to the Americans. Uh, that was a sort of, there was a separate operation.
0: But in but, practice, uh, does it happen that uh, you have two Uh, two superiors, does it uh, happen that uh, one vetoes the other?
1: Essentially, Britain could veto any decision made by NATO, the Americans, or anybody else. And, you know, we had our rules of engagement, we had our terms of uh, operations there, and and we we could veto anything. They couldn't veto us. That's the way national chains of command work. And, for example, we had with us in Kabul, we had Germans, French, all operating under different rules, different uh, terms, and, 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 and their own national command would decide what they could and couldn't do. But it, it, sounds, it sounds convoluted, it sounds difficult, but it didn't, in my experience, didn't actually affect the operations on the ground, which were pretty, OK, they had the problems, but they were pretty seamless.
0: The Americans stayed on for 20 years there and only left uh, in the summer of 2021 um, in a shameful manner. Uh, and the Taliban came back. Was that uh, preordained?
1: It wasn't just the Americans. It was the Brits as well. We were there right till the end, and we left in a, in also in a shameful manner. And, and, and in my opinion, that, that, that it, was, it was a huge misjudgment to withdraw in the way we did. It wasn't preordained. Yes, of course, every operation ends at some point, but it was premature, given the circumstances. And I believe it, it, it was a, a humiliation for the US, the UK, and the other countries involved, and NATO as a whole, which I think probably led directly to the invasion of Ukraine by Putin, who was emboldened by seeing the weakness that NATO exhibited in Afghanistan.
0: Uh, you were also um, uh, seconded to COBRA. Um, and, um, as far as, as we know, a snake may have some teeth, but, um, and they are sharp and, and, uh, and, uh, probably dangerous, but they're not very big. Well, what is that, uh, cabinet office briefing room? A or without the (laughs) A? What is that COBRA? COBRA is a
1: glamorous way of saying, as you say, Cabinet Office Briefing Room, A. Um, COBRA is the UK National Crisis Management Committee, chaired by the Prime Minister. can be chaired by people lower than him, but at the top level, it's chaired by the Prime Minister and attended by the Cabinet. Um, And it's kind of equivalent to, let's say, what's more familiar perhaps from Hollywood is, you know, the the White House Situation Centre, etc. It's that kind of thing. It sounds more glamorous than it is. It's, It's basically... Uh, the, the, the way the UK uh, coordinates and reacts to a crisis or an expected crisis occurring. And usually
0: you vainly wait for a crisis to happen.
1: Well, it, you don't sit around in COBRA waiting for something. Co- COBRA is convened when either intelligence is received that something's going to happen or something does happen. And my role in COBRA was I, was I was working for an organization called the Joint Intelligence Committee at the time, responsible for international terrorism. And my role was to chairman of the Cobra Intelligence Group, which basically coordinated all of the national intelligence services mi5 MI6 GCHq police intelligence, military intelligence to support Cobra uh, it, when there was a crisis and and, and it was it, you know in my time, just as an example, we had we had the seven seven London bombings July two thousand and five we had the twenty one seven London bombings a couple of weeks later. We had major terrorist attacks which involved British people in um, in Bali uh, and, and other places, and also
0: we British terrorists working for Al Qaeda. Yeah, others.
1: absolutely. And we had, you know, we had kidnappings which we had to deal with of of British citizens in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. So there was there was quite a range of crises we had to deal with during my period there.
0: Do you see any permanent lesson? Because um, obviously following 9-11 in the United States, there was the expectation and apprehension that more major acts of terror will follow. And as you mentioned, you had the July 2005 incidents. But generally, uh, more than two decades um, have gone by and no major uh, wave of terror.
1: Yeah, we've had a lot of... Um, low level terrorist attacks in the UK. And when I say low level, I include the Manchester Arena bombing a few years back, which killed a large number of people. But it was low level in terms of these are not um, necessarily major organized attacks, they're individuals or small groups operating under the the motivation, let's say of the Islamic State. But one thing I would say is that You know, there have been a number of plots, there have been a number of attempted attacks. There have been far more that have been prevented by our intelligence services than than the public will ever know about. So there's there's still planning, there's still a huge number of people who are suspected of planning terrorist attacks. And, And one thing I would say is I'd pay tribute to the role of Israel in this because Israeli intelligence, not just Britain but countries around the world, benefit from Israeli intelligence, one of the best intelligence services in the world, which provides, in many cases, including in my personal experiences, provides operational intelligence that directly leads to the prevention of terrorist attacks, and therefore saves lives. And I think, you know, Great Britain, the US, Canada, Australia, other countries in Europe, in the Middle East, can be so grateful to Israel for the, the, the life-saving intelligence they provided to our countries.
0: But nevertheless, your five-eye organization is only Anglo-Saxon. Um, <laughs> Israel, of course, claims that it is the sixth eye because it begins with an eye, but that also applies to Iraq, Iran, uh, Italy, and others. Uh,
1: well, I, well, the five eyes, of course, is um, Australia, Canada, US, UK, New Zealand. Um, but and, and I work very closely within that Within that grouping, during my time in the Joint Intelligence Committee and Cobra, um, but I would say Israel is a sick thigh. It may not be because it begins with I, but um, it, I think is, Israel has privileged intelligence access to, to to all of the countries concerned and to Five Eyes intelligence, and, and mainly because Israel is such an effective intelligence operative and is so beneficial and valuable. To us, but also so it's a
0: producer and a consumer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It worked. The, the relationship works in both directions, and, and we we you know many times we would exchange intelligence with the Israelis, which was beneficial to them. It wasn't just a one-way street.
0: Two final questions because our time ran out. Um, when did you decide to retire as a colonel rather than stay on, perhaps made general?
1: I I I got to um, it was I think nineteen ninety. No, sorry, 2000, around 2006, I, I retired from the army. Um, and, and I decided to do that mainly because um, I saw a future of sitting behind a desk. And my life was not to sit behind a desk. My, I, I, wanted, I joined the army in order to fight. That was why I joined. That's why most people who serve volunteer to serve in the British army, they want to fight. I wanted to fight. And, and, and the higher up you get, the less you do, the more you are behind a desk. So that was the main reason I decided to leave.
0: Um, from your uh, vantage point at COBRA, um, the interrelationship between the political echelon and the professional military and intelligence level uh, in democracies, is that workable?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's um, I mean, one thing I would observe is that um, for, from my interactions with, for example, the prime minister, the foreign minister, the defence minister, and the intelligence services, is that certainly in the UK, the ministers often tend to be almost dazzled by the intelligence services. It's a bit like with special forces. They're dazzled by special forces, probably unjustifiably in many ways but for that reason they tend there doesn't tend to be in my experience much friction between the two i think it it works quite well as and, and, and probably if anything cabinet ministers should be more kind of have more well, of a you grip know on the one, one of our
0: uh, former uh, foreign Tsipi Livni, yeah. who earlier worked for Mossad had uh, the uh, same observation uh that some of her colleagues in the cabinet were dazzled by the pyrotechnics uh. <laughs> yeah. now uh Colonel uh, Richard Kemp, um, uh, we regret that you had to fight over this last hour uh, across a desk, um, <laughs> but uh, it was our pleasure.
1: My pleasure too. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. This was a second part of our conversation with retired Colonel Richard Kemp of the British Army. We will be back with another edition of Watchman Talk. Shalom from Jerusalem.